0: Everybody, what is going on? You know what time it is. You're listening to Join the Journey podcast with your host, Emma Daughter. Thanks for joining and happy new year. If you're listening to this episode on release day, we're kicking off our 2023 Bible reading plan from Genesis to Jesus, Old Testament stories that point to the Savior. And if you're listening to this after January 2nd, 2023, no worries. We're glad you're here. And in today's chapter, as I worked through the prompts in my Join the Journey journal, I made an interesting observation, really for the first time ever. Because on day two, God never says it was good. When we think about Genesis 1, especially if we've been in church for a while, we know the whole it was good, it was good, it was good, and on and on till he gets to people. Then it's very good. But why does no one ever talk about day two? He doesn't say it was good or very good or bad. It was just so. It was so. But day one was good and day three was good. What's up with day two? Now, we know at the end of the chapter, God declares everything he's created as good, but why doesn't he specifically say so on day two? And why also, why don't we ever see the word time used? When was time created? What's up with that? What's up with time? Before we dive in, I want to take a minute to welcome you to Join the Journey. This is our second year of the podcast, but Join the Journey has actually been around since 2005. So whether you're an old friend or a new one, I'm so glad we're all on this journey reading the Bible together. And regardless of how long you've been with us, I've got three top announcements for you. Number one, this year we launched Join the Journey Junior a weekly podcast for parents with kids ages 8 and under. This podcast, it's really for the kids, but it'll also help parents facilitate a guided discussion centered around God's Word at home. Every Friday, we'll release an episode recapping a story we read that week. Which brings me to announcement number two. Where can you find Journey Jr.? On our brand new website, jointhejourney.com. This year, we'll be rolling out updates as the year progresses, but starting today, kids can read a special reading plan alongside the adults. And lastly, announcement number three. If more screen time is the last thing you need, we've got guided journals on Amazon. We've really upped our game this year with thicker pages and full-color print. There's space to journal each day, take notes at church on Sunday morning, and we'll link all that info in the episode description. Now diving back into today's passage. One time, I saw this funny video illustrating our human tendency to use objects or created things for the wrong purpose. That's to say, we have a tendency to try to use things incorrectly. In this video, it was silly, but clear. To set the scene for you, picture a mom, maybe in her late 60s, early 70s, and her daughter, probably in her 30s. The two are standing in the kitchen doing the dishes after a nice and fun family meal and game night, just chatting it up, laughing about how glad they were another family had given them this game as a gift. Picture it. And while they're talking about great gifts, the daughter remembered she'd given her mom an iPad for her birthday. So she asks, Mom, by the way, I've been meaning to ask you, how have you been liking the iPad I got you? And much to the daughter's surprise, her mom pulls it out of the dishwasher and proceeds to say, it's been an all right cutting board, a little too slippery, but its small size is convenient. The daughter was dumbstruck, and the mom continued to unload the dishes. And the video ended. When we use things for the wrong purpose, confusion ensues and in a similar way, we often do that when we approach Genesis. Genesis wasn't written to be used as a scientific defense for creationism or theistic evolution. It is actually a written record likely orated or written by Moses as he reminded the Israelites of their history. And these people, the Israelites, they lived in a certain culture— That is called—it's called the ancient Near East at a specific time, and that culture is much different than ours today. And when we try to make the creation account fit into what is familiar or commonplace for us, we're just like the grandma who thought the iPad belonged in the dishwasher. We miss out on all that's there for us to discover. Genesis was originally written in Hebrew to a specific culture or in a specific culture. So as we explore these questions about why the second day wasn't specifically declared good or when God created time, we've got to keep the literary context in mind. That God declared everything he created good at the end of the chapter—that's some literary context—and we need to account for the original cultural and historical context. That being said— What can we learn from the first three days of creation? As I was studying for this episode, I read a book that reflects on the thought and culture of the ancient Near East, really its impact on the Old Testament authors and audience. And this author pointed out that the focus of Genesis 1 was in his words, function rather than substance. Let me explain. Think about the word phone. I can pick up my phone, I can buy a phone, I can pay my phone bill, I can see my phone in the corner plugged into the charger. The word phone as a substance something I have or buy or see. But if I'm playing a game, I can phone a friend. I can phone a friend or someone might phone in to call in a game show. In the context of the phrase phone a friend, I'm using the word phone, a noun, to communicate the phone's function, calling that friend. In this context, I'm utilizing the word phone's functional meaning. It's a literary device. In Genesis 1 3 through 5, we see the creation of light, and the light is separated from the darkness. Now, the word light, just like phone, can be used with a substance meaning or a functional one. Defining the substance, quote unquote, sense of the word light is easy. Think in the scientific sense, very literal light electromagnetic radiation, and protons and such. But in Genesis 1, 3 through 5, God called the light day and the darkness night. He didn't call the light a bright ball of radiant protons bright or big, and he didn't call the darkness unlit or pitch black or dim. So how do we know if God was referring to light's substance meaning or its functional one? God labeled the two periods, the parts of a 24-hour cycle, day and night. Separating the two in today's passage, God labels the light Yom, Y-O-M. That's the Hebrew word for day, which leads many scholars to believe God is emphasizing light's function. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, the biblical authors use a different Hebrew word. They don't call the light Yom, they simply call it Or, O-R, another Hebrew word very clearly referring to light as a substance. Why? Why does God in this chapter label light day, whereas the rest of the Old Testament authors call it the normal light? They don't call it day. And the answer is simple. God is identifying light's function in this passage, his intention in separating it from the darkness. One author said, it's a question anyone can answer with a little thought. It was not the element of light itself, as physicists would discuss it, that God called yam, but the period of light. There's a term for this writing technique, and it's called metonymy. In metonymy, the meaning of the word is extended to include things closely related to it. When the White House makes a statement, it's understood that the building is not talking. People are. Consequently, it is not the physicist's light that is being named day. Hermeneutical consistency, which means good, consistent, quality Bible study method, hermeneutical consistency, the author states, would lead us to believe that when God said let there be or, the Hebrew word for light, when God said let there be light and calls it yom, the functional Hebrew word for light, we must then understand it as let there be a period of light. Day one concerns something much more elemental to the functioning of the cosmos and to our experience of the cosmos. On day one, God created time, the author concludes. And God called this kind of light, the light he labeled as day, this functional light that is separate from the darkness and marks daytime, God called it good. One commentator explains it like this. God named the light day, and the darkness he named night. In the culture of the ancient Near East, the act of naming was a sovereign act, an act of creation in its own right. The sovereign gives something true existence and identification by ascribing a name to it. The divine divine evaluation of this light is that it was good. In Genesis whatever produces life, preserves life, or enhances life is good. The light was the first element that God called good, not the darkness that it countered. But that brings us to my next observation question. Why isn't anything specifically declared good on the second day? On the second day, verses 6 through 8, God separated the waters in the atmosphere from the waters on land by an arching expanse or space that God called sky. In essence, some scholars argue that God didn't create anything new on day two. Rather, He just rearranged what was already made. And as the creation account unfolds, God makes more and more divisions and differences. Light is distinct from darkness, and now air is distinct from water. One commentator puts it like this. Conditions were beginning to come about that would support life. So God gave the command, and it happened. The report in this text is that that is what happened. The expression in Hebrew, and it was so, has a stronger connotation. What God created took its fixed place in time and space and was made perfect in conjunction with all other aspects of creation. God was working all things together. The absence of something being declared good on this day is significant, not negative. After creating time, God worked in space and sky, and the things He created worked perfectly together. They are so vast beyond our comprehension. They are, they are so complex, mere words on a page can never describe them. The words He spoke created intricacies and complexities we, can, we can't even begin to comprehend, and the words He spoke pioneered the very things that manage our lives on this earth—gravity and time— the depths of which scientists can only begin to comprehend. But if we think about it just a tiny bit more, we realize that Genesis 1 was never intended to scientifically explain how or why things exist. Rather, Genesis 1 explains our functional existence. Genesis 1 through 3 really explain our experience on this earth. And at the end of the day... We know that at the end of John, at the end of Genesis 1, God declares all things good. And as we continue to explore tomorrow, people were created to image God. That is to represent him to one another. And the knowledge that we are his image bearers should inform how we think about God because he is so much greater than anything we could ever begin to understand, which honestly teaches me a lot about myself. I don't know everything. I don't even know myself. My knowledge falls short, and I I can't trust myself. I'm not God. Reflecting on God's sovereignty in Genesis 1 reminds me, Emma, of Jeremiah 17, 9, which reads, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Emma's heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? I'm broken by sin, but God is perfect. I can't know everything, but my God can. In fact, He does. I'm excited for us to expand our view of God this year as we continue through Genesis. So sorry this episode was a little longer due to those announcements at the beginning, but it is good to be back. And as always, I am so glad we're all on this journey reading the Bible together